electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. CP Ugly, the hotter-than-expected inflation report, sending stocks tumbling, then reversing. We'll debate what all of that means with the Investment Committee. And Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel will join us momentarily. Remember, he's made the case that the Fed has already done too much, so we wonder what he thinks now. We'll ask him, of course. Joining me for the hour, Kerry Firestone, Steve Weiss, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, also with us here on set is our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Let's check the markets. We did hit fresh two-year lows before rebounding in a big way. Steve, we got to 3502, then we took off. The Dow's made a more than 1,000-point turn. I'm wondering what you make of it, uh, what you think it's about. Steve Weiss, I should say. Yeah, you threw me calling me Steve. Uh, <laughs> very out of character for you. I forgot uh, that the other look, one was sitting I, right in I front think of me. It's a, yeah, I, I think it's no more than a question of the numbers were expected to be bad. They came in bad, perhaps not the disaster that the headlines would leave you to believe. And it's popped off that. It, to me, if you look at the inverse of this, it's no different when, uh, when markets try to get through resistant levels in a bull market. They often fail before going through them. I think you'll see the same here. To me, this rally is unsustainable. Could you see it go another, another day or two in the absence of more bad news? Yes, but I still think the direction's lower and that earnings have to be reset more than they have been already. Yeah. And the Fed clearly is on a path. But don't, blow, don't, don't blow it off because you were on the wrong side of it. I mean, seriously, I mean, considering where we were, a 1,000-point move in a couple of hours on a super negative uh, CPI shouldn't be understated. Is it, is it a bet, as Leesman and I were talking about a moment ago, what people, some people at least are talking about? Is it a, is it a peak inflation turnaround? Is it a weak dollar no, turnaround? I'm, you know, what, what is it? I, I think there are separate issues. There's inflation, which is one issue, and that's not under control. Eventually, it will be under control. But the other issue is what the damage is to the economy. And that's going to be reflected over time, not right now, although we're seeing some hints of it. And I'm not blowing it off. Look, it's a bear market clearly a bear market and you'll see bear market rallies and that's what this is is this influencing my positioning absolutely not i still believe that the that the path of least resistance is lower and that's what's going to happen and we've seen these rallies before and i'm not thrown off because i'm on the wrong side of the trade i've been on the right side of the trade since january you have of course and you guess have what? just about every and every single stock that i've sold Every single one, with the exception of Devin and maybe a couple of others, is substantially lower than where it was. So I'm happy with my positioning. I'm sticking with it my, and not being deterred by a momentary bounce. I understand. Um, look, and you're, you're not the only one who is thinking about the bottom not being in. 
uh, Civita over at uh, Bank of America, no bottom in sight. Our bull market signposts, a composite of 10 indicators that have historically signaled market bottoms, continue to suggest that risk that the market hasn't bottomed yet. So, Kerry, we're up uh, better than 600 on the Dow. It, it is a remarkable, remarkable reversal considering how we started. Uh, if we were down 600 at this moment, I wouldn't be surprised at all. But we're not. What do you think about it? Well, I, first, I'd like to comment on the fact that the no bottom in sight. I, I'm not sure when there ever is a bottom in sight. At a certain point, investors start to be willing to take more risk. And the idea that the futures were way down after the print wasn't a surprise because this market has really been determined by uh, investors and traders who are not interested in holding risk because of the fear about inflation and the next move of the Fed. So if today is a sign that there are some buyers who intend to hold on to positions that they're taking, I think that's a good move. You don't know when the bottom is in sight until, you know, you start to buy and eventually that will be clear, but it will be only when we look behind us and see that there's a bottom. So, you know, you, you never know. Are we pleased? Yes, we're pleased that there's been some buying because if the market's down 26 percent, clearly there is some bad news built into this market. The mm -hmm. idea that Perhaps there's another 15 percent just seems excessive. This market is oversold. Are all stocks oversold? No, but there are many that are that are. And we've been picking our spots right. and trying to buy positions because we think that there is a point over the next six months plus where we'll know where we are with interest rates. They will have stopped rising. And it's probably time to be making some investments in solid companies that earn okay. money. So, Leisman, um, I'll tell you one thing about the market. It's expecting a lot more from the Fed, right? I mean, after the number came out, and you pointed to this earlier. Uh, if you were thinking of maybe 100 more basis points, the market's got about 150 by year's end, right? Yeah. 75 in November and another 75 in December. So that's a little hotter and higher than people mm -hmm. were expecting before this came out. I'm, I'm going to answer your question, Scott, as if the market's not up 600 points. If at the end of my conversation you still think the market ought to be up 600 points, God bless you. But this number came out. It was worse than expected. It didn't show any improvement. If you're talking about a countdown clock for when you could think the Fed might pause, you had to reset it again after resetting it again in August. So there's none of that. And then you have what you're talking about, this fairly dramatic move in Fed fund futures that now is trading at the peak of 488. I don't know what our chart says in the back. We make it a little bit before the show here. It was 490 and change. It's come down a little bit. You had a, a, a good close out of Europe, I think, was important. At 487 now. It was 466 going in. Market baking another 20 basis points. And let me tell you, it is time to start thinking about what Larry Summers has talked about, which is a plus 5% funds rate. He tweeted the other day, inflation has never come down before the funds rate was above the inflation right, rate. Right. Um, and there's, uh, sorry, look how good they are on the back there. There's the change from before and after the number, that 466 going up, it was already, as you said, 490. I cannot begin to make a, a case here for a, an easier Fed, a pausing Fed, a pivoting Fed. I've got a Fed that has to keep going straight ahead because the thing that they were most focused on, Scott, which was the service sector, it accelerated. Now, 
if there is any good news in this, it comes from a guy like Ian Shepherdson, you know, from Pantheon. I have it in front of me, and I'm, That's I was going to quote it. Let me I quote didn't it. know you had it. Okay, you didn't know it. I knew you had no, it. No, I didn't. And, and I have it right in front of me because I wanted your reaction that, to I was, it. I was just going to bring it up. All right. Here's what he says. Quote, evidence of falling inflation is everywhere except in the inflation data. Right. Fed <clears> choice. Wait because the pipeline will work through or keep hiking until inflation starts to fall, ignoring lags. Yeah. No support in economic theory for the latter, as long as expectations anchored, they are. So how do we take that? This is no slouch of a guy. I mean, no, Ian, Ian, but I will, I will say this for Ian. He has been more optimistic. I mean, he's very good, but I think he's been wrong in his optimism. I think he believed that by the summer inflation would be falling. I don't know whether or not he didn't discount enough the Ukraine war, whatever the reason. Um, but he has been more optimistic, and he remains telling you that this is going to change and turn hard the other way. Um, I don't think the Fed is going to react to the indicators that he and I think the professor who we have coming up are urging them to act to that, that if you do not see it in the data or convincingly some other place in some series, in some data series, that they're not going to change their course. So I want to bring in the professor in a moment, but I, I do want to hear from a couple other members of the committee first, including Jim Labenthal, who I was thinking of, as many of you probably were today, front and center when this report came out, because it certainly flies in the face, Jim, of what you were hoping to see and of what part of your thesis is built upon. Yeah, um, so I think Ian Richardson hit it on the head. Shepherdson. That these, Shepherdson. What, Scott? Shepherdson. Yeah, Ian Shepherdson. That he hit it on the head that when you look at the granular data that should go into what the CPI and the PPI is saying, there's a complete disconnect. And I can't explain it, but I can look at gasoline futures and go through the whole litany of why inflation should come down. I'm not disagreeing at all with what Steve Leisman is saying, that this, of course, emboldens the Fed. But I think the question is, why are stocks up? And the answer to that is not really knowable, but it does philosophically bring us back to a truth, which is that you simply don't know when the best days in the market are coming. They tend to be clustered around bad days. And the truth of the matter is, if you look at the S&P 500 over the last 20 years, if you had missed 20 of those best days, one day a year, your overall return on an annualized basis goes down by about two thirds. That's the risk of being out of the market. Now, Steve, Steve Weiss has been right. I've complimented him many times on it. But for those of us who are, are real buy and hold, and we're looking at values of individual stocks, there's just no way we're selling at these levels. It doesn't make sense, and the danger is to be out of the market and miss days like today. So, Josh Brown, again, we're going to get to the professor in just a moment, but I do want to hear from you on what you're thinking about uh, the kind of reversal we, we are in the midst of witnessing here. Whether it lasts or not, the fact that it reversed to the magnitude that it did is newsworthy in and of itself. Yeah, I think I think the people who trade on shorter term technicals are going to start talking about hammers. And that makes sense to me. Um, and that's a style that I don't personally utilize. But, uh, yeah, that will be notable for that crowd. If you're a swing trader or, or a shorter term uh, minded trader, you're going to look at those lows and then retracing all of those lows and then turning green to the extent that we have. We don't know where it'll close, but that'll be something that tells people, OK, uh, maybe there's a, a, a rally here, you know, a tradable rally here that goes beyond just one day. Um, but I'm on the side of Steve Weiss. You know, this is probably the fourth really big update that I can remember this summer. 
Um, you know, it, it happened to have coincided with CPI, which all the other CPI days were hugely negative. So that in and of itself is interesting. It's a little bit of a change in market psychology. Um, but I, I think it's still guilty until proven innocent. And, you know, the way that we do tactical using more intermediate term technicals, I will never know the bottom in the moment or in it, certainly not in advance. It's really only the passage of time where a low <clears throat> no longer gets violated. But let's just keep in mind, we made a fresh low today. Mm -hmm, we we went below both the June and the September low. So that's now part of uh, the trend. And we can't just forget about that. Um, it's, it's, it's the situation that we're in. The last thing I would say, you know, we're now in a moment where people are saying to themselves, how many times can I sell the same stock on the same news? <laughs> like, you take JP Morgan, for example, which, ha which I think it opened low, right? green. New low it, it was one of the Probably yeah, but too. it was one of the first stocks today, one of the first stocks today exhibiting any kind of strength that I was looking at, yep. just as kind of like a bellwether for the XLF. Uh, if City. you've been in that stock and it's come, it's come down from 170 to 103, and the entire reason it's come down month after month is inflation, how many people are left that still want to sell it because of inflation? <laughs> So that's an interesting that's an interesting um, aspect to this market. We can't keep selling the same stocks for the same reason over and over again. At a certain point, you run out of people and you run out of shares that, right. that, well, that are going to come loose. That, right. As Steve Leisman just said, as you were speaking, that's how you create a bottom, right? You run out of sellers. The question is, you need a catalyst to bring in the buyers. And, and you need a, a more lasting catalyst than three hours. And the question is, what is that going to be? It seems the only thing that that's going to be is this idea that the Fed is closer to the end than the beginning, even if the futures show that they're going to be a little tighter than maybe we thought before this number came out. On that note, let's bring in our headliner today, Professor Jeremy Siegel. He is of the Wharton School. He joins us now. Professor, I was so happy when I heard that you were booked today uh, because I so remember our conversation the last time when you were all riled up and animated about what the Fed was doing, making the argument that they've already done too much. For those who may have missed that, I want you to watch yourself, and we can talk on the other side. Here's a clip of you from a few weeks ago. Makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. Way too tight. We do not have to get anywhere near that level to stop inflation because all the inflation is basically stopped. So, Professor, doesn't this report today vindicate the Fed? Does it vindicate the Kashkaris and the Mesters and all those who've said it's not close to a peak? And doesn't it prove you and others wrong? I don't think so. Let, let me tell you why. Um, let's go to the housing sector up seven tenths of one percent. That is totally ridiculous. Housing prices by every indicator are going down, not up. Even rentals, yes, they're going up from contracts. They're going up from a year ago. But talk to the people on it. They said, I can't get the jumps that I got earlier this year. That should be minus 0.7%, which, by the way, wipes out core inflation for September. Let me give you a really interesting fact. The distorted way the government does housing statistics from March of 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, until this summer when the housing market peaked, the, all the best housing indicators, case show or the government indicators, housing was up 40 
percent. What do you think the CPI housing factor was up? 11 percent because of the lagged way it put the rising prices in. What does this mean? We had so much more inflation over the last year and a half because of the inflation wasn't in that that housing sector. And now when the housing is going down, and by the way, I click housing prices fall 10 and 15 percent and the housing prices are accelerating on the downside. Will you see that housing sector in the core negative next month or the month after that or the month after that? No, you'll continue to see that positive. It's imperative that the Fed recognizes it, that that is not an indicator of what the real rate of inflation is. And a second really important point, and, and I think Ian Shepardson really hit it. When did the Fed start tightening? In March. Uh-huh. Is that supposed to work in six months? Look at the Fed exploded the <clears throat> money supply by in 2020, the year of the pandemic, by more than any other year in the last 150 years. Did we have inflation in 2020? No. Did we have inflation in the first half of 2021? No. Then we started in the second half, and the Fed said it was temporary, so it didn't do anything until the March of this year. (laughs) All right? So monetary policy, you know, we started tightening in March. Are we supposed to see that in the core now? No. What do you see the tightening of the monetary policy in Just like what did you see the loosening of the monetary policy two years ago in? You see it in the housing market, you see it in the financial market, and you see it in the commodity market. All of those exploded in 2020, which showed you that inflation was definitely there and going to go into the official statistics. And what have happened to those three markets? They've gone down. When will it get into the core? Months, if not years down the line. If the Fed waits for the core to get down to 2% year over year, it'll drive the economy into a depression. Totally wrong. I'm not at all surprised by the number because the number is ridiculous. It has no meaning to what the actual rate of inflation is. So in the housing, which is almost 50% of the core rate, I is know the most hard. distorted of all. So your take, last time was coined by some uh, of the Fed. They know nothing 2.0 after Jim Cramer's famous one in, in 08. I have Leisman, Steve Leisman, right in front of me here, who's been listening intently to everything you're saying, who noted himself what Shepardson of Pantheon had noted earlier today as well. What do you make of what the professor said? I mean, you can listen to what he says and, 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 and suggest I, I have a clarification, which is, Professor, is, is, is your bigger problem with the pace of rate increases or the level? And I'm interested, in, most importantly, in your sense of what level you think is appropriate for the current economy right now. Um, just leave it there. I think we're very near that level, maybe another 50 basis points. I disagree with Larry Summers. We have to move way ahead of the rate of inflation, which, by the way, is much less than the year over year or official statistics actually show. The major reason for that is that over the last 20 years, we've had a tremendous decline in real interest rates around the world and in the U.S. So a particular interest rate is much tighter today than it would have been back in 1980, 1990 or even 2000. 
So I think we're at a very tight moment now. I'd give them another 50 basis points. But, you know, if they do 75, 75 and then move into 2023 with continual move, they're, they're going to go overboard. I mean, we absolutely I, I have a lot of sympathy with what the professor's saying. Well, a lot of I'm people trying do. to what I'm trying to do is think about a way that the Federal Reserve as policymakers could systematize the essence of what he's saying, which is to take a series of market signals. For example, recognizing that the rent numbers are badly lagged. We've reported on that and said that quite a bit. Using commodity prices. I'd, I'd be a little bit careful about using money supply because that gave a very false signal in 2008. Maybe the professor wants to come forward and tell us how we can use that. Um, th that was something that Greenspan rejected back in 1993. Um, and I do think for reasons of financial stability, as well as this idea of lags, which is probably the only thing we really know about monetary policies that affects the economy with the lag, there is a reason for the Fed to get to a level that is at least somewhat restrictive and to pause there. Unfortunately, the way the Fed has laid out its case right now, which is based upon the data as published, I mean, maybe what the metaphor for what the professor is saying is the Fed is driving the car, has its foot on a gas pedal, sees the brick wall in front of it, and is not taking its foot off the gas. I guess in this case, it's the brakes. Well, look, I mean, Jeffrey Gundlach has suggested the same as well, that they're going to drive right, in, right yeah. into a wall because they're, you know, they've got these big glasses on. They can't see exactly. It's all fogged up. They can't see exactly the, the right things yeah. to look at, like the professor insinuates, and then they drive right, right into a wall. So, Professor, you're not the only one who, who has these views. We had Mark Lazary on overtime yesterday, of course, uh, the, the you know, investor from Avenue Capital who said this, and I want your reaction to this on the, on the other side as well, as well as the gangs. Let's listen. I'm not really a big believer in what the Fed is doing. I think at the end of the day, You've got this huge issue that is going on right now where every time you keep raising rates, um, you're pushing the economy closer and closer to a real recession. So what are you doing? You're trying to tame inflation, which I get. And but if I lose my job because we're going into a recession, so instead of paying a little bit more for goods, now all of a sudden I've got no job and then the Fed is going to turn around again to start lowering rates. So if I was the Fed, sure, you can raise it one more time, but I'd slow down because I think there is a real risk to this economy going into a real recession. Well, well I mean, Professor, this isn't a guy who's even talking his own book, right? He, he, he finds opportunity in times of stress, right? And he's suggesting that they're, they're going too far. The minutes yesterday say that the Fed's far more concerned with doing too little rather than too much. Because they did so little, you know, the pendulum swings. Oh, my God, I made such a bad mistake on one side. I really got to be tight now. I, I would like to come back on Steve Leisman about the money supply. The money supply, which is the one that Milton Friedman monitors think is important, is M2. And that increased very little Good. in 2008, 9, and 10. Ben Bernanke's uh, quantitative easing just went into excess reserves of the bank. That is not part of M2. It, we did not explode the money supply then at all. The explosion of the money supply was 2020. And Friedman said 12 to 18 months later, you're going to have bad inflation from that. And bingo, we had it. And since March, the Fed has screeched on the brakes and the money supply has fallen. So that gave you an absolutely correct signal two years ago, and I'm worried that this 
decline in the money supply, but by the way, is one of the biggest in the last century um, in terms of, of decline. Of if they keep that up, it's going to also produce a bad outcome for the economy. So, so I think you've got to look. I, I think money is an indicator. I am very upset that the Fed continuously dismisses that when that proved to be an exact right indicator for what we're in today. Yeah. So, Steve Weiss, I mean, you know, the, the professor's made his case. You, um, I know, are, are on wholly the other side of, of what he's he says. To me, the, the biggest risk is letting inflation continue. And we just don't know if we'll or not. And the Fed, and, and I'm not trying to say that this is absolutely the right thing to do. What I'm trying to do is take a look at all the facts that I see them. And one of those facts being that Powell overstayed his, uh, his view when the, fle- when the actually the professor was exactly right, uh, that inflation was transitory. So they're not going to make that mistake again. And I believe that they've got the appropriate tools to handle a recession. And that, frankly, while going to recession may be an issue, what's so much more damaging is the 70 percent of the people in the U.S. that live paycheck to paycheck that don't work in the jobs that we work in, that the professor works in, that aren't able to meet ends meet. So if you're going to err on the side of caution, do it for them, number one. Number two, we're in a much different market environment than we were during prior periods of inflation. And by that, I mean that because of all the financial products out there, because of the quant funds, because of all the different financial instruments out there, the market participants can take any movement by the Fed in terms of giving a nod that they're going to pivot and turn to an easy money environment. We've seen that with the 10-year. We've seen that with rates where they're able to go out and drive the bond market yields lower and loosen economic policy. Mm -hmm. So at this point, what I'm saying is you've got the Fed on one side with their tools, which are not that effective as they would have been in terms of the, the strength of those tools against market participants. So they've got to make sure that we don't have an easy money policy. If the market turns around, goes up 30 percent and stays there, then the Fed sort of failed because the market action is another monetary tool. So let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Professor, stick with me. Um, I know we want to get everybody else involved in this conversation, too. We'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. All right, we're back. And we have Professor Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School to continue our conversation. So, Professor, forget about what you want to happen, what you think should happen, how clueless the Fed is, according to your view on things. If they remain on the path in which they suggest they will, what does it mean for stocks? Where, where would we go? I, I, I do want to answer that, but I also want we, we just discussed about who's going to be hurt by the inflation that we have. And it seems like Powell wants to balance it on the backs of the lower income. He talks about 
you know, we have to crush the wage increases. Uh, a few people talked about the wages were reported 830, just like the price falling three and a half percent behind inflation. People are trying to catch up. How can they be a cause of inflation when their wages are going up less than inflation? He, it sounds like he wants to make the job market so bad that no one can ask for a, wa- a wa- raise and and we're going to put all these people out of work. I don't think that that is speaking for the lower income people. I think the current policy is very negative. You have inflation in the pipeline. Let that core inflation, partly because of statistics, partly because of bacon, go through and then aim in the long run for your 2%. What does this mean for the stock market? If they over-tighten, bigger probability of recession, obviously. Uh, you know, I mean, what, what do we have? 236, that's way too high for next year. If we have a bad recession, you know, maybe it'll be down 20% for 200. And then maybe 2023 will be 200, and then we'll jump back to 224, 240, and then, and then 240 again. I mean, if you do the math, on two years of bad, really bad earnings, you know, we've already taken care of that in the market decline. History shows the market always declines far more than it should. Every single recession over the last 100 years. Well, listen, NBR has been computing recessions for 150 years. Every single one, the stock market has fallen more than justified by the future path of earnings. Under, understood. I mean, I mean, and so, you know. Again, uh, again, but you can make the same case, and there's some do who, who say on, on both sides it, it does, right? It, it, it overshoots to the upside. Um, right. You know, it, it, it takes it over, the escalator it up and the elevator it's more down. I hear you on that. On but, both sides. Yeah. You know, jo- my good friend get Josh Brown in. Professor, let me, let me get I'm Josh Brown. That. Professor, let me get Josh Brown into the conversation because I know he's been patiently waiting to get in. Josh? <laughs> I. I forgot I was on the show. I felt like I was just watching it. Sorry. Uh, Professor, (laughs) Professor, I actually want to ask you a question. Um, Have people forgotten, in your estimation, have people forgotten that if you're truly worried about inflation and you think inflation is going to remain high for at least the next year or two, uh, I feel as though there's a lack of awareness that historically stocks and REITs are the very best inflation protection on planet Earth, better than gold, better than treasuries, obviously better than cash, better than pretty much anything else you can do. That reality, and you've written uh, an entire book about it, that reality does not appear to be reflected on my screen. We have had more down 1% days this year than in any other year save two in history. Uh, Why aren't people more aware of stocks being the cure um, and not just the, inter- the you know, the near term pain from, from something like pernicious inflation. Yeah. Well, uh, Josh, you're, you're perfectly right. The 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 evidence is overwhelming, uh, incontrovertible that in the long run, stocks completely overcome the inflation and your returns after inflation are the same. I mean, all the inflation we've had over 200 years has come since World War Two. Price levels up 25 times. And the real rate of return is six and a half percent a year after World War II. And it was six and a half percent when there was no inflation for 100 years before. So absolutely. But there's three phases. When money pushes in, stocks run race ahead. And then when the Fed tightens, that's when they go back. And since the Fed delayed so long and they're tightening so much, this is the most painful of that second phase 
of that. Yep. And that's why people are questioning, do you have stocks, real assets or not? And then finally, when they succeed, it goes back up and completely overtakes it. The long run evidence is there. We're in that middle phase. And it's more painful than ever because the Fed delayed so long. Professor, I'm going to I'm going to let you run. I so much appreciate your conversation. Well, hold on. Steve Leisman is, is raising I, I, his hand. I, I He's making need, faces. I feel at me. Need he needs to quickly to provide the other side here. of the story here uh, it, 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 because nobody else is at the moment. And and that's as follows, Professor. The, the Federal Reserve would argue that it does not have any control over supply. The only uh, control it has is over the demand side. And it must create slack in the economy by raising the unemployment rate. The other thing the Fed would say is that we had a round of stop and start when it came to raising rates. And that was in the mid-70s. That did not break the back of inflation. And what they're most worried about is not today's inflation. It's tomorrow's inflation becoming entrenched. And I just think it's important for that to be on the table as two forces that are motivating Federal Reserve policy right now. Well, first of all, I think it, it, we don't have that because they we never saw the commodity prices go down. We never saw the house prices go down. Um, and and we, a lot of other things were not going down then in their stop and start policy. In particular, their money supply never went down. It just continued to expand and expand. So I do think we're in a diff, uh, very different mm -hmm. position. And by the way, Jay Powell himself said once, and we know that it works with a lag, but he's almost acting like, I'm, I'm going to keep on tightening until, with my eyes, I see inflation. Steve, wasn't that the problem that we've gotten into two years ago, that they waited until they saw inflation before they acted, rather Fair than enough. all the other indicators that said things are going to get worse? Yeah. Professor, um, good stuff, as always. So much appreciate the conversation. I know we'll talk to you again soon. Jeremy Siegel at the Wharton School. Jim Labenthal, last-minute edition. I know you're busy and you got to bounce, too, so thank you. Thanks for bringing up that last point. Um, too. Not that you're here to in any way defend the Fed, but it's important to have somebody who understands the way they're thinking in the room. He may end up being right, out. but I'm right now because those are the things animating the Fed. Whether or not they're right about that, I can't help you with. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. That's Steve yeah. Leisman here. Um, we do have a big turnaround in technology as well. We've been talking about the Nasdaq at a two-year low of late. It's now one of the top sectors on, on the day. So, Kerry Firestone, um, we've had a massive rebound for the semis. Some questioning whether we're either close or at the bottom there. How do you see this space in the here and now because it's been so troubled so much? Yeah, so we're owners of technology, and of course that has not been a great place to be this year. But as you look over the long-term earnings growth of the stocks that, many of the stocks, earning stocks, not stocks that don't earn and we're selling at 50 times sales, those stocks have come down um, tremendously in terms of their valuation so that instead of selling at 30 times uh, next year's earnings you know they may be selling for 15 times earnings with growth rates of you know 12 percent and the most expensive stocks in, in software that might have had multiples if they were earning anything you know 200 PEs are now down to you know 40 PEs I mean we we bought a a stock align it's kind of a, a healthcare company but high tech and and that stock was down um, you know, 60 percent, and it's selling for 22 times earnings. PayPal sells for 17 times earnings. There, there are uh, Google sells for 16 times forward earnings, and you can say perhaps those earnings are too high and they're going to come down. But even with incremental cuts, they're still selling at lower multiples mm -hmm. than much slower growth companies and consumer staples. So we think yes, there are opportunities here. Are we saying that this is the price that you absolutely should? 
put a whole position in because that's no, the lowest not. they'll go? Of Can't say not. that. We, we of course totally not. Get but that. do we think they're? Do, do we think that it's justified that they have moved some of these stocks? Yes, because assuming these people are buying or machines are buying because they're looking at valuation or other metrics, um, this is where, you know, the buy signal hits. Okay. And yes, we, we would agree that that's correct. Okay. Um, Josh, Adam Parker asks the question today, is it time to buy tech? How would you answer that for somebody who recently bought the SMH? Now, I don't know how long you plan on being in there, but... Is it time to buy tech? As he asks, he's not suggesting that necessarily it is. He said the valuation is not yet that compelling in the aggregate. Uh, but again, you're never going to pick the exact moment. So how would you answer that question? Yeah, look, I think I think there are areas of tech that will bottom in advance of the overall market. And there are areas that won't. So if you ask me what I think, uh, what segments within technology um, are going to be the most recession resistant, I would say anything to do with cybersecurity. The problem with that is the fundamentals may hold up, but the multiples may not. So I'm struggling with that very issue right now with a position like CrowdStrike. The fundamentals are off the charts good. Go back and look at the last four earnings reports. There are almost no companies I can think of that have growth like that. The problem is, what are you willing to pay for it? And with every passing month, as the money supply gets tighter, rates go higher, people pull back in their horns, it doesn't matter how good the fundamentals are. It doesn't matter that cybersecurity is recession resistant. All that matters is there are less buyers willing to pay today's price. So it's very tough to do this game if you're thinking about these stocks fundamentally. It's way easier to say, well, historically, have I been rewarded for buying high-quality technology companies when they've been cut in half, provided I don't think the entire business is going away? The answer is obviously yes. So I think that argues for being more selective, not being in a rush. I know Weiss has been making this point all year as well. What is the rush? Why do you have to put on a whole position now? Why do you have to call the bottom now? So I think the right approach is to be adding exposure just not acting as though this is as bad as it can get, because clearly that's not been the case. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, financials among the best performers on today's big reversal. We're less than 24 hours from a big wave of earnings. The big banks, as they always do, kicking all of that off. We're going to get you set up because a lot of the bank stocks today have staged a tremendous reversal and in some respects have led it. We're back after this. General Motors is launching a new division to connect homes and businesses with EV chargers and energy storage. GM Energy will provide battery packs, chargers, and software to help customers optimize charging and ride out electric grid disruptions. The automaker will invest $750 million in charging infrastructure with plans to build a network of 40,000 stations across the country. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report.
That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Florida jury has decided that the 2018 Parkland school shooter will not face the death penalty. The shooter had pled guilty to 17 counts of murder. The jury recommending life in prison without parole. The jury deliberated for seven hours. At least 18 people are dead after a bus fire in Pakistan. The bus was transporting flood survivors back to their hometown. Over 1,500 people died in last month's flooding and hundreds of thousands of people remain displaced. Officials say the bus caught fire after the air conditioning malfunctioned. And the next public hearing of the January 6th committee is set to kick off in just under an hour. This is the ninth public hearing and the final one before the November midterms. While the hearing's not expected to include any live witnesses, there is expected to be new testimony and evidence, including Secret Service records and surveillance video. Halftime returns after this break. We're hanging on to that massive rebound. As you see, Dow's good for 633. It's like an 1,100-point turn um, today. So we'll continue to follow that. We are counting down to bank earnings, of course. We do have an interesting financials downgrade today. It's American Express, Carrie, uh, to sell, hmm. which you don't see that often at City. Price target to 130. There it is, 139. So they think it's got a little bit more downside, about 5%. That's from 159. Reaction? Oh, well. I don't think it's a good call. I mean, the stock's 12 times earnings. It's a bank. They've got a lot of cash. That cash is earning more money. Travel is still very strong. And American Express caters to more affluent customers. And those people are traveling. And their uh, pocketbook is, is, well, hurt by the stock market going down. They still are spending money. And so we, we feel that at this price, you know, it's fully discounted or, or a lot of it discounted mm -hmm. in uh, in terms of a recession. We don't think it's a good call. OK, so we've got these bank earnings coming um, tomorrow. Weiss, you got Bank of America, you got Goldman Sachs, right? You talk about how you have barely any positions in the market. These are ones you've kept. So I'm wondering where your expectations are ahead of tomorrow morning. Yeah, so so I've reduced those positions like every other that I still hold now. Uh, and I've kept those because, frankly, I like how those banks are run. It's a leadership call. I think CEOs are both great. Now, you know, it's been out in the press. Goldman's been reducing headcount. Uh, B of A, I'm not sure, but they will. All the banks will. And the biggest variability there is not really technology costs with a lot of companies, but is compensation. So compensation, they target somewhere between, you know, about 50% of revenues. I would look for that to come down. They're in an extremely challenging space. They've somewhat lost the spread because the inversion of the yield curve on loan book, loan demand should be slowing, and I believe it is, and never really ratcheted up. And then, of course, you've got the capital markets, which are at a standstill. So they've got their challenges. So I'm not playing it for now. I'm playing it for later on. I've got good cost basis in there. My gains obviously have eroded somewhat. But, you know, I can't be out of stocks completely because then in days like today, 
uh, you know, it'd be horrendous for me. So the other thing I'd say, though, is the shadow banking is where I am most concerned. You've had a massive buildup in shadow banking, 50 to $100 trillion by some estimates. Right, right, And right. that's where I think the real stress point could be in the system. Okay. Hey, hey Josh, real quick before we take a break, because you mentioned J.P. Morgan earlier today, because mortgage rates are, are surging today uh, as well. And you've got Simon Property Group, Invitation Home, and the Vanguard Real Estate ETF. Just give me a comment there, because otherwise we're going to run out of time and not touch it, and I do want to do that. Well, I think what all of those stocks have in common is uh, they've come down substantially. Their multiples have contracted. And uh, forward earnings estimates have also come down a lot. At a certain point, that stops. Stocks will frequently rebound well ahead of when that process, because people aren't stupid. So I would not be a seller of any of those names that you just listed. Um, I'm not quite adding right at the moment, but we're, we're approaching a moment where a lot of the bad news will already be in these names, and they will no longer respond negatively to more bad news because people will start to sense, okay, we've already discounted a lot of these negatives. Okay. Let's do a quick break. We'll come back with Mike Santoli in his Midday Word. All right, we're back. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us now from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday word. I mean, 3502 to 3646 and nearly yeah. 700 points on the Dow. What do you make of it? The start point uh, that you mentioned there has some significance. We, you and I have spoken about it. That 3500 level just had a lot of focus. A lot of people gathered up there saying that might be the enough for now level. Uh, nothing really good or nuanced to say, I don't think, about the CPI, except it pretty much is as we as we thought. There's some stubborn elements there. But Fed speak over the last couple of weeks has told everybody, and we were talking about this last night too, Scott, that the Fed is not assuming it's going to get help on the inflation numbers very soon. So it didn't necessarily change where we thought they were uh, situated. So down 50 percent of, you know, 50 percent kind of on unwind of the entire post-COVID rally, six days down in a row. The initial starting point was just, I guess, stretched enough. Now, worth the perspective of saying the S&P, even after this massive upside reversal, is essentially up to the old floor, the June intraday lows. That's where we've been hanging around, and the market has kind of refused to have too much aggressive selling below that. Earnings, arguably, for the current quarter, we've gotten expectations beaten down pretty low. And you're going to see a little more stock versus stock divergence, less correlation. That means the VIX can calm down a little bit, and we'll see. If, if the 10-year has uh, struggles to get above 4%, that's bullish for stocks right now. Weaker dollar is as well, I would assume, which yeah. it is today. All part of the same story, yeah. Yeah. All right, Michael, we'll see you in a few hours uh, for your last word down at the Stock Exchange. Mike Santoli. We'll do final trades next. Overtime today, 4 o'clock Eastern, we've got a big show. Dick Costolo, former Twitter CEO. He hasn't commented since Elon Musk said he was willing to pay the full price, 54.20, for Twitter. Well, he will today, exclusively with me on the set at the New York Stock Exchange. Look forward to that. Jonathan Duskin, he has a new letter about Kohl's. New demands, too, from Macellum. He'll join me, discuss exactly why he's targeting them yet again. Liz Young, Bryn Talkington, we got a lot to talk about, and I hope you'll join me in a few hours, 4 o'clock Eastern time. We also want to congratulate Carrie Firestone. She was just featured in Forbes 50 over 50 list. 
Carrie, we are so proud of you. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Scott. What's your final trade, Kara? Let's say AMT. I've stuck down 40% on fears of FX and interest rates, but this is a company that has long-term contracts. It's about data and voice all around the world, and that number is increasing over time. And with escalation clauses in their contracts, we think that this is the stock that's overdone, and it's a buy here. Okay, thank you. Uh, Josh Brown. Two things. Number one, I want to uh, say hello to Gavin Spitzner of uh, Wealth Consultant Partners, who's in the hospital. Big fan of the show, and he's he's going to uh, fight this thing and win. Dutch Bros, big upgrade from J.P. Morgan. Uh, I think the stock has been completely washed out. It's 30 percent below where it was the last time they reported earnings. This is a company that's going to grow from 600 stores to thousands of stores in the next few years. I like it here in the low 30s. Okay, Steve Weiss. Why don't you wrap it up? What do you got for us? I got deer, and deer, if I owned it, I would be a seller of it. Stocks had a major bounce back. I think it's frankly bounced back too much. I'm not suggesting short it, but I would take profits if you're an owner of it. You think, Josh, you know, J.P. Morgan, we may get, you know, it hasn't done well after these earnings the last couple of quarters. Is this going to be any different? I don't, I don't think so, but I think they're being appropriately conservative. I think loan loss reserves will represent a drag on their earnings, but that's what a big, uh, uh, syst syst systemically important financial yeah. institution should be doing right now. Okay. So I'm, I'm confident. All right, it. we are hanging on to a big gain. Now, really, after that rebound uh, has been remarkable. We'll see how it all shakes out for the rest of the day. I'll see you in OT in a few. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.